what I wanted to do was fundamentally um, disrupt that and change that where animation is about performance um, and give the tools the ability to the performer so that way it, it's not necessarily um, the artist uh, that's creating the illusion of life, but it actually is a recording of life. That's one part of the equation of, of creating a realistic living um, personality in, you know, that could be used inside digital ecosystems. You're listening to Lights, Camera, Crypto, the podcast exploring all things entertainment and Web3. I'm your host, Stephen Ladden, and this week our guest is Remington Scott. Remington is the founder and CEO of Hyperreal, which is a company that helps A-list talent own and control their digital identity and IP across the metaverse and all digital ecosystems. Prior to that, Remington had an early interest in animation and was heavily, heavily inspired by Disney. He ended up working at Acclaim, where he oversaw the creation of characters that were based off of real people and used to create digital characters who were uniquely human-esque. So from that process, he had the foundation and the skill set to take real-life people and help create digital human-esque characters, so much so he ends up working with Peter Jackson on Lord of the Rings, works on Spider-Man 2, holds uh, a couple of other executive positions in the VFX space, and then ends up founding Hyperreal. Let's dive in and see how he got there. Remington, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Stephen. Nice to be here. Yeah, great to, great to have you here and uh, to learn more about you know your journey and uh, that of uh, Hyperreal. Uh, really excited to to learn about both. Maybe just as a starting point, you know, growing up, did you have an interest in in music? And you know, what what were the early uh, interests that you that you had that eventually led you on to the path where you are now? Growing up, I grew up. I was a child of the '80s. I think it was the best decade ever. Sure. <laughs> I think we're all realizing that. And uh, uh, you know, I grew up loving um, first-generation video games. I played games as much as I could. I thought there was magic in those, you know, those systems. And uh, you know, I, I wanted to, I wanted to be a part of the games industry from before there was an industry. Hmm. If I had, you know, some quarters in my pocket, I'd be down, skateboard down to the uh, local deli or some some place where there's arcade machines, and I'd, you know, just jam it full of arcade, you know, quarters and play. Sure. So, you know, um, it was natural for me to to make, you know, to somehow get involved in that, and that was, you know, my first foray. But I was also very interested in in art. I was, you know, I used to, um, I think. I was extremely influenced by, you know, Walt Disney and the, the Disney company and um, all their animations, you know, growing up as a child, watching the excitement around, you know, bringing um, characters to life through animation. Uh, you know, as, as a child, I used to have a, um, an animation board. I would draw and create little animations. So, uh, you know, it was a, a sense of, of these pieces coming together is where I first started. And I made um, 
the first game I worked on when I was a senior in high school. And, uh, and, and what I didn't realize at the time, kind of mid to mid-80s, that we were creating the first digitized home video game. You know, di- didn't really know that it was, you know, going to be a, a um, uh, something that would completely change an industry that was so new at the time. Mm-hmm. And define its own uh, its own image and and its own process, but digitized images were you know really the, the ground um, creating a ground plane for interactive movies and watching movies you know that we watch today on the computer. Um, so we were really the first that were doing that in an interactive format. Wow. Okay. So so in uh in an unexpected way actually it's it's gaming really that was sort of the backdrop to a lot of those early interests uh particularly as you mentioned stemming from the 80s and stuff like that yeah it's like gaming and and you know the first game that we worked on it was um it was just you know two guys in an attic with a bunch of pcs and uh we were able to go out and get the license to the world wrestling federation um the first video game for the world wrestling federation <laughs> you know and uh uh we were digitizing images of the wrestlers and in, at that time it was guys like hulk hogan he was a, mm-hmm. a big wrestling star and um all these other relevant talent like him and uh you know we had videotapes of them doing their moves and i'd go through the video and i'd find select keyframes of them going through and doing an action and i'd digitize those keyframes, we'd get it onto the computer and then we could play it back. And it was like watching a movie on the computer. And this is at a time when you, you couldn't do that on computers. Sure. Um, you know, we did it on a PC um, because we thought, you know, a PC was going to be um, pretty much standard in every house. And we thought, let's make games for, um, for, you know, a large platform that was growing. And uh, within 10 years, term multimedia became a thing <laughs> and we had no idea we were you know doing the first of that at the time and f- interestingly you know digitizing these celebrity superstar wrestlers was the beginning of the career i made a career digitizing celebrities so mm-hmm. um it started early and somehow it just uh all <laughs> rolled out from there. Um, very, you know, as very fortunate that, you know, where I did this was in Long Island, New York. Um, believe it or not, that's where it all yeah. started. And, uh, you know, the video game industry in the 80s, you know, it's hard to pinpoint where the hot spots were. It certainly wasn't Silicon Valley and it certainly wasn't California. Some of it was happening in Japan, but in the, in the United States, it was anyone's bet. And, Long Island seemed to be the right place. Little did I know that our publisher in New York who was publishing these games, there was a group that was working with them. And uh, they went and started a company to publish games. And it became the largest publisher of digitized games in the early 1990s. It was called Acclaim. And they were the ones that made Mortal Kombat. And that was a digitized fighting game. So, you know... and. The headquarters for that was the next town over in Long Island. <laughs> by uh, you know, by no coincidence, and I was a director at Acclaim, 
and I was directing um, these uh, digitized action sequences and and these you know giant green screen stages that we had up on the North Shore of Long Island at the corporate headquarters for Acclaim, and that data that we were creating was just being distributed to a global infrastructure of game developers that were building the games you know internationally. And we were building the content at this core headquarters. So we had created a distribution uh, center for high-end content in Long Island, <laughs> of all places. Wow. I keep throwing that in there just because it's really random. But it's funny because that's like where um, Westbury had the technology institute there. A lot of um, technology came out of that. Um, people who ended up starting Pixar came out of Westbury in Long Island. Um, so there was something going on there. It was very exciting times to be a part of the technology. And, and of course, um, being at Acclaim in the early days, um, you know, as we saw the 3D systems coming online from Nintendo 64 in the early 90s, getting specs on that, you know, there was a challenge where how, how do we digitize people, you know, digitizing people in 2D. And then we had to um, figure out how to digitize people in 3D. Um, and that's where um, we identified motion capture. It was in a medical lab, and it was being used to analyze um, the rotation of femur, the ball of the femur inside the hip for hip replacement mm -hmm. surgery. And, you know, gait analysis on a treadmill with a couple cameras. And we took that tech and we said, let's now digitize full bodies, multiple people, and build an entertainment system around it for creating, you know, not for medical analysis, but for entertainment purposes. And that's where we had the first motion capture studio in the world dedicated to entertainment at Acclaim. Wow. In Long Island. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It started. It didn't start in Los Angeles, it didn't start in, you know, anywhere you thought it would. <clears throat> and that's, I think, technology, you know, finds its innovation centers wherever, you know, wherever you have the people that have the desire to make it work. And, uh, and so that, that's my early days. That's how I got into it. And, um, I hope, you know, I, I spent many years, um, on a motion capture stage, uh, you know, capturing, um, actions way before it was a thing anywhere else, you know, right. and, uh, just so much experience, all of the, um, jargon and methodologies that you have when you walk on a motion capture stage these days, um, we created those fundamentals back then, you know, mm. it was all, it was a completely new process and we had to figure out, uh, every aspect of it from video reference cameras to putting a grid on the, on the ground to, you know, how to talk to actors and how to get them to create a performance and what kind of performances and all of these pieces, and today it's it's pretty much standard. You walk on a motion capture stage, and everyone kind of knows what to do because uh, we define that. Well, and and it sounds like you were very much on the front lines of, as you're saying, defining it of creating that process of creating really what you could argue Long Island helped uh, create the industry standard of what that looks like today. I mean, yeah, and 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 it's it's the beginning of of building a soul in the metaverse. You know, um, yeah. you know, I go back to Disney and I talk about you know how we looked at Disney in the first part, you know, the majority of the twentieth century, as 
animators who fundamentally were um, creating the illusion of life by drawing on paper. Mm. And, you know, the way animation worked um, for all the new new school kids here, um, you know, there used to be 2D animated movies. (laughs) They don't make them anymore. (laughs) I haven't seen one in a long time. But this was the thing. And, uh, you know, it was just artists who would draw image after image after image and um, constant repetition. But every frame was a little bit different. And then when you flipped them and played them back, it would be this animation. It would look like they come to life. And Disney was just, their animators were amazing at this. It's just all about the raw talent. And uh, what I wanted to do was fundamentally um, disrupt that and change that, where animation is about performance um, and give the tools the ability to the performer. So that way it, it's not necessarily um, the artist uh, that's creating the illusion of life, but it actually is a recording of life. And so mm-hmm. that's how digitizing people and how they move uh, fundamentally is is getting the performances. And um, that's one part of the equation of of creating a realistic living um, personality and you know that could be used inside digital ecosystems so in many ways it's just transitioning and and kind of building upon what you're talking about in terms of the uh 2d animators of how they were bringing to life characters or or bringing to life stories that through 2d characters where perhaps life didn't already exist you're taking that a step further and helping to create you know, renderings of actual people in the space of performance art or performances and have that more so mirror life. Yes, Stephen, that, that, that's, I think that's, you know, that, that, that's, that's what we saw looking back on this. I mean, at the time, and you're in it, you don't realize it. You, you, you know, I called motion capture an animation tool. It was like just another tool in the tool set for animators. Mm. And what I know now looking back on it is it actually is a system to simulate reality. Mm. So it's, it's a different way. I, I phrase it now as a different way because you know, simulating reality is, is, is different than animating. And when you're, when you're animating something, it is, it is an incredible art and skill for animators to, to create the illusion of life, you know, through the process in which they are animating it, they are the stars of of these characters and bring them to life. But you know what I was looking at is how do I take actual people that have um, incredible performance capabilities and simulate their actions into a digital ecosystem? So now it's a, it's a it's it's it's, a, it's not an animation. It's it's a it's a quantum difference. In what these, in what this is, and and that is effectively um, reality into a into a new digital ecosystem. So you know, and it, it started with performances, and then you know, as I worked into feature films, um, you know, it was about getting that reality captured from as much detail as I could because compression from reality from an analog reality into a digital universe it's all about compression and we don't want to compress the performance 
So you have to find mm-hmm. ways to be able to distill a performer into a digital character, but essentially keeping what makes that character come to life and what the performer is doing. And, um, you know, that, that's like, for example, when I went to Weta um, to work on Lord of the Rings, I set up the performance capture stage uh, there and uh, I worked with Andy Circus. And um, Andy is the, a brilliant performer. He, he created um, Gollum and, um, you know, he was the performer. And, uh, you, know, you know, I was there working to make sure that uh, what Andy did fundamentally was distilled and digitized in a way that would simulate his performance reality into a new being, a new virtual being of Gollum. Mm. And uh, in the, in the way we did that actually was um, in real time. Uh, it literally, it, and this is coming out of having the system from Acclaim, which was, you know, coming out of a, a game engine where we were doing things in real time. <laughs> and now I had a capability where I could go onto a feature film set um, over over 20 years ago <laughs> and uh, and have, you know, Andy um, over there, you know, on the set and he's moving around and we're looking at a monitor and on the monitor is Gollum and Gollum is doing it while Andy's there. And um, we're not really even talking Andy, <laughs> we're talking to Gollum. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Gollum's talking back to us. <laughs> So, wow. you know, that's when you can have a direct dialogue with a virtual being and communicate. And then as an actor and performer, Andy is inside this like magic mirror um, that allows him to transform himself beyond what makeup could do. And it all gets back to, though, the the motion capture technology that at its core, you know, you said a claim had developed uh, helping, you know popular games like Mortal Kombat. So to think that that sort of same technology was then being used in the example you gave with Lord of the Rings where Andy's becoming Gollum and the difference between the two is essentially a screen. And that's, that's pretty wild. And then what everyone got to experience is Gollum uh, on the big screen. Um, but we got to experience him every day <laughs> talking yeah. to Gollum. <laughs> and there he was. Right. And uh, I think that was the, you know, so much fun. and. Um, and that actually, you know, it really helped um, Peter Jackson. Um, you know, he he wanted a way that he could move beyond animation and work with the technology that allows, you know, actors to be simulated into the reality of cinema. And uh, I was waiting to work with with directors like like PJ um, through the '90s. You know, looking for opportunities for visionaries like like him. And, um, and, you know, he, you know, he, he opened the door for a lot of people and, uh, this is, you know, Weta still uses the core, um, technology uh, principles for the films that they're still working on today for performance capture. Um, and so, you know, I'm really, you know, honored to be a part of that, the early initial building of it for Weta and, uh, helping them to, you know, get this moving correctly in the right direction. Um, but you know, as I, uh, you know, another um, opportunity I had was I was uh, head of uh, digital humans at Sony Pictures, where um, you know I was on the VFX side of of the equation. They were making anim- motion capture films that were animated. 
I was on the visual effects side, um, and I, I was, you know, essentially building a, you know, a pipeline with a very small group of highly skilled people so we could create extremely realistic humans. And these were mm. digital doubles. So it wasn't like an animated character. It meant to be an exact simulation of reality. And, uh, you know, we identified uh, technology out of the University of Southern California from the Institute of Creative Technologies called LightStage. And uh, LightStage was an academic um, concept um, and a, a brilliant um, new way to be able to record the reflectance of light. And um, we used this tech uh, on Spider-Man 2 to create um, the photorealistic digital humans, Tobey Maguire and the other uh, digital characters we created for that film. And it was the first use of the light stage. Now, light stage is basically a you know, very used technology in the visual effects industry, and it's becoming more used in uh, video games but it really allowed us the ability to move beyond just motion capture, but now get the fine details in the skin and the surface and how all of that information can be transferred. So for Spider-Man 2, it was the first photoreal digital humans in film. You know, it really opened the door. Um, it's the second film we won an Academy Award for. And this, um, you know, Marvel, you know, it just exploded after that. Um, because now there's capabilities for creating realistic digital humans in their movies. And, um, you know, shortly thereafter, we started seeing Iron Man come on board and, and, and the other properties. Um, but, uh, you know, um, Spider-Man 2 is really where it started. And, and when you say creating realistic digital humans, are, are we talking about the same type of actor to character, uh, as you said, through the mirror, like, with the example of Andy to Gollum, except now we're taking, to use the example, an Andy to a, a digital Andy? Well, it was it, in this example, it's like um, Tobey Maguire being um, Peter Parker. And, um, you know, it's an exact version of Peter Parker that you see, but it's a computer-generated image that you can't tell the difference between the two. So when his mask comes off and um, and his, his moments um, when, you know, you think it's it's um, an actor. Um, it is a computer generated digital twin, uh, as well as some of the other characters like Doc Ock, for example. Um, so this is you know it, it kind of like um, you know expanded the capability and the tool set for directors to be able to now um, not just create the characters like Gollum, which is a unique new uh, visual character, but actually create these digital twins. The difference for that though is that um, on Spider-Man 2, it wasn't real-time. Uh, you know, we, we had to go through a rendering engine that actually rendered for quite a period of time to get the final result that you see in the movie. Um, the processing power was, you know, it needed to be quite extensive on the compute. So one of the things that um, I was taking advantage of being at Sony was their game division, the Sony Computer Entertainment of America, and they were launching the PlayStation 3 after that. Mm. So I took that opportunity to take Doc Ock as a light stage digital human that was being created in, in um, you know, for film and in an offline renders could be uh, hours of rendering per frame and uh, rebuilt him so he could be in real time for the PlayStation 3. And they showcased that on the PlayStation 3 launch 
um, as a technology that they can do now to have realistic digital humans in their games. And you know, by doing this, there's just sort of like one of those R&D efforts that I was inspired by because I come from a video game background. Um, you know, I'm not satisfied when a character <laughs> is not performing <laughs> as quickly as I want it to, right? So uh, building a, uh, a real-time asset out of something that is um, extremely like computationally heavy uh, was for me like a bit of a challenge and, and we were able to, you know, the team and myself were able to execute and then, um, and that opened doors that, that, that allowed me to then go into the, um, Sony computer entertainment of America division and start working with their uh, games departments on, um, directing for their, for their video games. Um, uh, cause the whole concept was, you know, they wanted to create a, you know, games that are, um, and they still do, and they do it very well. I think Sony's one of the leaders in, games in which you have emotionally real human characters that you're interacting with. That's always right. been the goal. And so I was able to get in there. And, and once I was directing, you know, we were working in, and this is what I did at Sony, by the way, as well as, you know, working with the actors for the films, um, helping them, you know, to, to, um, to define what the performance would be, understanding how that performance looks, and then making sure that we're not compressing that. So that way it doesn't translate onto a digital human. Um, but doing this in the game space allowed me to be able to say, wait a second, I'm getting this great performance on the stage, but when I'm in the game, it's not coming across as rich or as engaging. And it, you know, I, I would be able to have a, a unified look at the whole process to understand every aspect of it. So that way I can go in there and go, these are the parts of the full stack pipeline that need to be rebuilt until you have the ability to have a performer delivering a uh, emotionally compelling performance and you have a digital twin of them that is um, conveying that performance with as much realism as the analog version of themselves. That's super, super interesting. Yeah. And it makes me think, but just to jump back to Spider-Man 2, so to understand, were you saying then that much like being on the front lines of motion graphics when you uh, were, were we'll, we'll give it a shout out, we're in Long Island, uh, is, was it the same sort of front lines when it sounds like you were in the, you know, in the transition between movies and video games and, and, and how those two worlds intersected when it comes to, as you're describing the creating those emotional characters that can kind of live and exist in both worlds. Well, let's go back to that. So just to going back to, to the time, you know, when we were at, you know, at this motion capture stage uh, at a, at a claim on long Island and we were creating these realistic moving humans um, that, 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 you know, we were seeing the first realistic digital humans in an interactive format. You know, and and you could you know in, you know on the 3D systems, the polygon count was extremely low, and the texture count was low, and so you know it, it didn't look good. But the way they moved, and they moved like humans. You could take like you know a stick figure and put human movement on it 
And you'll believe that that's a human because of the way it moves. You'll believe it's alive is maybe the, the, the idea. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, these, these, the game systems, the early game systems were very polygonal in how they looked. So if you didn't nail the movement, you really didn't have much there to be engaging. And that's what we were building at Acclaim. And so while we were doing this, um, you know, we couldn't help but notice that Hollywood was making incredible leaps in the um, advancements of computer rendered images that looked great, like Jurassic Park came out at about that time. And so we were looking at these dinosaurs that were absolutely like photoreal. And you, you couldn't help put the pieces together and say, okay, Hollywood's got the capability to render them. We've got the capability to make them come to life. Um, we can go beyond dinosaurs and we could create digital humans here. Like this is like the next step. And so, you know, I, I was actively, um, you know, reaching out to visual effects studios and uh, producers in Hollywood in that during the time period to be like, hey, there is a, um, a new technology capability here. And, you know, um, we think this would be you know, amazing for storytelling to bring to life new characters. And you know, there's a whole, you know, it's a pitch on it. And um, you'd think that people would, you know, be like excited about it. But honestly, during that time period, Hollywood was just not interested. You know, everyone was just basically really? like, you know what? If we want to have a visual effect of a, of a of a person, we'll just shoot them on a green screen and composite them in and for a human. And it was like, yeah, I get that. But that's kind of what we were doing when we were shooting guys on green screen in 2D like five years ago. <laughs> like, so... It's really interesting. The games industry is really innovative beyond, like way beyond Hollywood. It always has been. I mean, if you look at right now, virtual production, it is all about real-time game engines, disrupting and creating a whole new way to see and interact as Hollywood executives and creatives are telling stories now, you know, with all this new technology. Um, so sure. we, we happened to be at the very beginning of that virtual production and we were, you know, we didn't even know what to call it at the time. And, um, uh, so that's what we were saying. And funny enough, the first film I worked on, um, it, it was a full, it was called Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. And it was produced by a video game company called Square. So like Hollywood was like not interested in this at all. And right. a video game company is like, we've been doing this and we really think this is like the future of animated movies. And we want to create the first cyber film. And uh, that's how I got on board. They hired me, you know, and I was a director of motion capture on, uh, on the Final Fantasy film. I set up, you know, the whole performance capture thing and I, I directed the performance captures for that. And, um, you know, it, and it was the first film to use that. Uh, and now, you know, you, you, I'm, I'm not, I'm saying there's an, you know, an evolution that worked through the years, but, you know, you look at um, studios uh, that are out there, um, you know, struggling with animated films. And then you look at Avatar and you're like, yeah, 
simulated reality is the next thing. It's what everyone, you know, we're grown accustomed to that. I think we've seen enough animated things over many, many processes. And now you look at like what Avatar is doing and, you know, they're bringing characters to life through the motion capture simulation. And that's why it looks so great. And I think that's why it's such an exciting franchise, you know, as well as incredible storytelling and everything that has going on with it. But the underlying technology and what you're seeing when you're seeing this and you're processing it and you're feeling the emotions of those characters, it's because it's real emotions. It's real people right. that they captured. Right. And those people are being, you know, put into a new digital identity. And that identity is their screen identity of, of the Navi and these other uh, characters that they, that they portray. So um, there's definitely, you know, um, a timeline that correlates to, you know, just getting that started and, um, you know, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll go back to it. You know, when I was doing this, um, it was not easy because I was effectively disrupting, you know, an animation industry that had been around for most of the 20th century. Nobody in the animation industry in Hollywood wanted to deal with motion capture because it was not animator centric, you know? So, you know, it wasn't easy to, to be able to, to try to build a, a new uh, technology platform um, you know, when there's industry giants that don't want it to happen. Sure. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, the idea is that, you know, the idea is that if you have something worthwhile and you know it's, it's good and you know it, it works, you get behind it and you believe in it and you push through and you continue and you persevere until you make it work. You know, and that's, and that's what I did. And I, and, and there's many times when there is technologies I've been working on that, you know, weren't necessarily accepted or adopted or people be like, but then in the big picture, you look at it, you go, go back and go, okay, um, that actually really got worked out pretty well. So, um, you know, somebody said there. Yeah. And how does everything that you were just discussing lead to uh, the creation and, and founding of Hyperreal? And you know, what types of projects are you guys currently working on? And, and how is it advancing the space further, as, as you were talking about? I couldn't wait to get to this question. <laughs> I feel like we had a whole conversation about you know, lots of fun stuff that happened in the past. But, you know, what I'm so excited to talk about is Hyperreal and, and we're, what we're doing and how we're, we're creating, um, a, you know, a whole new um, technology and platform for um, monetization and marketplace of digital identity. And uh, so, you know, um, just to take some of what I've talked about and understand it, the you know over the years um, I was you know coming in to work on projects for um, top directors and producers on you know award-winning films and um, best-selling video games and uh, creating these you know digital doubles of of uh, very uh, you know well-known recognized 
tier one performers and celebrities. And, you know, you put a lot of effort and energy into building these digital identities. You know, they're called avatars across the industry. Mm-hmm. At Hyper Real, we call them hyper models because that's how we brand it. Um, and I'll talk about that a little bit. But um, the avatars in the industry, they get built for these projects, these activations, whether it's film or game or VR or anything like that. And then at the end of the product, when it comes out, the producer doesn't have the rights to continue to use that identity. And the performer whose identity was created digitally, they don't have the capabilities or the rights to continue to use that asset moving forward. So it's basically like a, an asset that just doesn't get reused. Right. Who, who, and so, who, who controls it at that point? No one. It, there is no rights to control it. It's built as a single purpose entity asset. So it's a real waste. And I've seen talent, you know, coming into movies where they have a digital version of themselves in every single movie they're in. You know, Will Smith is a great example. He was digitized four times in one year. <laughs> you know, um, almost every actor is like this nowadays. And, and every single one of them is throwaway. Wow. And so, you know, that's why we started Hyper Real. We said, let's disrupt this. Talent and the rights holders needs to have the right to copyright and own their digital identity. And they need to have control of that digital identity to monetize it as many times as they want so they can scale themselves. And that digital identity needs to be able to work in any ecosystem. So that way it's the one true identity likeness across all ecosystems that are being built out there. And you know the metaverse is going to be hundreds of, of ecosystems. And so every single metaverse world, you've got to create a new avatar. And, then, and that one doesn't work in this one. And maybe you buy something here and then you can't show it off there. That's got to end. And so that's what Hyperreal is set up. We're going to, we're, you know, what we're building here is the Hyperreal you know, universe for your digital identity. And it's all, you know, as you can talk wow. to me, it's over decades of experience working in the industry and knowing every single capability, working with almost every major studio and knowing how that infrastructure, because I pretty much designed a lot of it, is created. So that way now we can have something that just, it, it, you know, is able to be, uh, a, you know, an identity that's scalable has unlimited potential for monetization and it allows you know the ip holder to control across all the digital ecosystems that are out there today and in the future so it's sort of your your one-stop shop for your digital identity yeah your one and then and then and now you need to be empowered creators need to have the digital identity so they can scale so you know, and, and that's and that's how um, there's so many new opportunities. We're living in um, a fractured reality of many realities uh, in, in you know in the metaverse and beyond. You know, ever since the internet came online, um, this is the case. And as we move towards the metaverse, it's a dimensionalized web. That's the fundamental difference. 
And there's also going to be a difference in which there's rights ownerships. And this is all what we're building. So when you talk about dimensionalized, you need to have a synthetic version of yourself that can be used in any synthetic uh, digital environment or ecosystem. And you need to own the rights to that. So I'd love to talk about that for a minute. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, you've seen deep fakes, right? Yeah. They're out there. And, you know, I mean, basically any, I mean, I know kids, you know, in high school with a high-end PC that are doing deep fakes. It's, it's open sourced, you know, there is open source software. Um, if you have a will and enough compute power, um, you can be deep faking anybody. <laughs> All right. So, you know, you're not talking about any like real technology advantage with the open source deep fake uh, AI. So what makes it different? Well, some people really are very good at this and they might have some technology advantages in doing it faster or computing it better. But fundamentally, it's all about the training data, mm. right? Because an AI is only, it's, it's, an AI is like um, a house of mirrors. It's only as good as, as the data you put in there that you're going to you know, reflect around it and see it. So for anything, generative AI or, or deepfake, for example, it's about the training data. So fundamentally, you know, do you think that any, I mean, here's a question. <laughs> Everyone out there deepfaking, do you own the rights to the training data? No, they don't. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're deepfaking um, Tom Cruise, you know, Look, looks great. I've seen it online. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's, yeah. there's a group that does it. They're really great. They do an incredible job. It's beautiful. But um, fundamentally, that data set is not owned by Tom Cruise. Even if Tom said, sure, go ahead, use my, my name and likeness and go and monetize it all you want and build a company on that, whatever. Even if that was the case, Tom does not own his rights to his images, as far as I know. In all those movies, they're owned by like Paramount. You know, they made the movie. Right, right. <laughs> so you're talking about like major studios that have spent a lot of money to get the rights for their stars to be in those properties. And now you got these guys coming in here and they train on all of the images of that person's face from their movies that are copyrighted. And they're using it for new performances. This is like big problem, big problem. This this is going to cause a lot of problems, and it, so I'm going to pause there for you as you process. This. Yeah, it, well, it reminds me in a very different way, sort of the advancement of when when Napster came about and Kazan and kind of what the MP3 did to the music industry. It what you're saying evokes sort of that period in time, albeit for music. But in this case, we're talking about film and, and likeness of one's you know, character in, in a property owned by a, a large studio. And so you know, the correlation being we're talking about studios here, not uh, record labels. But do you see a similar sort of situation unfolding, basically? Yeah, this is Napster. This is all over again. And it's going to happen for talent it's going to happen against um copyright holders and in, in in you know movie studios um this is this is 
about to happen. Generative AI, if you, you know, check this out, um, you know, you could type a prompt and it will create an image. And that image will be a wholly new image based on training data that they don't own the rights to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, they just scrape the internet. Right. And so, you you know, you in, in a very short period of time, it's not just going to be images. It's going to be um, videos. Yep. So we'll be prompting and I'll, I'll, I'll be typing a bunch of prompts and I'll send it to you and you'll open it up and you'll execute it and you'll watch a movie that's being generated from my prompts and we're not sharing any of those image files. Right. Which is, so there's no copyright infringement on that part. Right. So where's the copyright infringement? If we're making movies now that are all new Marvel movies, starring all their characters, but we've created a whole new movie and we're sharing it. <laughs> I mean, like this is fundamentally going to be a massive problem. So what Hyperreal is doing is all, you know, we're starting with the talent. So that way they, they own their rights. And, and what we're building is this training data that is their training data. And so if, if say, Tom Cruise, for example, wants to go out and have a deep fake, he doesn't have to go out and get the rights to every single one of his movies that he was in. He takes this digital synthetic um, hypermodel that Hyperreal has created for him, and he owns that. And now he creates the training data from that. Mm. So he owns all of it from moving forward. And that's the key thing is that this needs to be owned by the rights holders, whether you're NIL or you're a corporation that has a synthetic being or you're, you know, somebody that has your rights. Uh, this needs to be this way. It, it, this, there's a real, like, I'll give you an example without giving names. Um, we're working with a, an athlete now that um, we're going to announce very shortly, um, major, um, incredibly uh, influential champion, champion of champions, GOAT. And, um, you know, there's, you've seen images of him as a champion when he's winning. Now, later in his life, he wants to go out and make t-shirts or he wants to go make NFTs or whatever. Those images aren't owned by him. They're owned by the photographers that took the pictures. So he has to go out and get the rights from those photographers who have the copyrights to those images. But it was his moment. Mm. He owns the moment. Right. But he, that moment is past. It's, it was temporal. So... You know, when you go to the copyright holders of these images, you're really only limited to what that image looked like from that angle and that person's perspective, and they have the copyright to that to that image. Um, so what we're doing is we're re-simulating those moments. So now there's any number of new uh, copyrighted material that they can go to, and they don't need to go to a photographer to get the rights they created themselves, and now they have the rights themselves. Hmm. So they own the moment. They take it back. And they, and they can have un unlimited new images coming out of that moment. So there's one way that we're working with talent. So that way they can come back and claim what is theirs, what they fought for, what they've won, and, and what they own. And they can now own it and monetize it across all the new ecosystems 
that we're working in and, and that are coming up and emerging. So you're saying it's essentially they would take, as you mentioned, if, if uh, with this particular champion in mind, you know, they want to take uh, this replicated moment, take a, a still image from that experience and put it into, you know, across all these different worlds, but it would be complete ownership on their part of said moment. Yeah, because they own it. Because now we create a new image from a new angle, from a new perspective. It's their copyright. It could be from any part of that moment. You know, it could be, in, you know, but, it, but, but they now have it. And it's copyrighted. Wow. And now it's part of their IP. Right. And what we want to do is we want to create IP value. You know, because, you know, uh, you know uh, rights holders, you want to expand your rights. That's how you build LTV, infinite LTV. Um, you know, you want to have a, a lifetime value that just keeps growing. So, so your IP is growing. And this is not just for our tier one um, celebrity talent that signs on with Hyperreal. This is, you know, all about, um, you know, it's going to be coming down to everyone. You know, you're going to be somebody who has a certain way that you sing. You're going to be someone that has a certain way that you move. You're going to be someone that has a certain way that you look. And you'll be able to license that out and monetize that in these new ecosystems. Wow. And that stands to, I mean, I think the, the other underlying thing, just to underscore your, your point here, it's like if you're able to then take that IP and plug it into whichever metaverse you're dabbling in or, or, or any, uh, all these different worlds. I mean, that that stands to create some structure, but also revolutionize the way in which we own and control media. Yeah, yeah. And there's two ways this is going to go. It's going to go like Napster, <laughs> right? We're going to see control is gone. People are out there, you know, just using these images they don't have the rights to and they're generating new new content and that's one way it's going to go and the other way is you own you own your rights you own your own the rights to 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 your copyrighted content and now you license that out and now we're going to have creators coming in there and working with you to create new content and everybody benefits it's a new creator ecosystem. But the core thing is, is it's, you've got to be able to have that core data copyrighted. And that's what we're building. We're, you know, we're building this um, platform to be able to, to, to allow talent to have the copyrights and the ownership to control that, to protect it. You know, we, we have it on the blockchain. Um, There's smart contracts and ledgers. You need to monetize this. We have all of this opportunity within branding that we're working with and different ecosystems, top uh, gaming systems. So that way your digital identity can scale across virtual ecosystems um, through the blockchain en encryption and, um, and just become you know, industry leaders in a protected manner that works best for, for your identity and how it grows. This is really like that thing. It's like the next thing that's happening. Um, this needs to, this is where this needs to, this is what needs to happen. So that's why we started Hyper Real. 
Right. And 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 you started it predominantly with uh if I if I have my information correct with with performances, right? Yeah. So the expansion then has been I guess did when you started it with performances, did you have the vision that you would one day expand into the kind of conversation we're having now with you know the uh, uh owning the rights to your image yeah that's how we started hyperreal it, it was you know back we've been thinking about this for almost 20 years right how to execute this and it's amazing how these pieces are coming together you know things like nfts that we've seen this really incredible bubble that happened and there's a lot of discounting that right now and i get it the initial NFT drops and all that were pretty much about pretty pictures. But underlying the fundamental concept that you can take a digital asset and you can register it, and that registration then has value, is key to the future of Web3 and blockchain and your digital rights control and management. So even though, you know, the Web3, you know, you know, the world is, is kind of come and gone and it's this crazy um, thing to talk about. There's underlying technologies that I've been waiting for a number of years to come about. So, you know, in, in um, I think it was 2018, I registered the first hyper-real digital human on the blockchain. Oh, wow. This is like something that, you know, been, you know, been waiting for a long time and knew that this is going to be important. So... You know, we have that because we need blockchain traceability. We need smart contract licensing for transparency. Um, and we, you know, we need to provide uh, accountability for uh, the talent monetization. So there's, you know, there's technology pieces that come together that are forming this full stack solution that allows us to be able to do what we're doing um, and and create this, this new kind of... Um, um, platform for for um, monetization and the marketplace of digital assets which which it sounds like it's it's cliche at this point but timing you know you say it's 20 years <laughs> that, that's kind of, kind of what it is <laughs> you know people are gonna go oh man you had the right right idea at the right time I had this idea 20 years ago. Sure. <laughs> and I've been waiting for this time. That's what I'm saying. Like, so like, you know, it's just a matter of like building it over and over. And, you know, when we first started Hyper Real, this is what we wanted to do. But our business thesis was challenged because people would ask us, well, what, what is my digital hyper model going to do? Well, if, if I make a hyper model, what's it going to do? <laughs> That's a fundamental question. And, and like, you know, um, we had to actually build business cases. So, you know, we had, we, you know, it was like, well, your hyper model can work in a, in a music video. So, you know, we went out, we contracted with Paul McCartney. Um, um, Paul, uh, you know, we de-aged Paul. He's an innovator. Paul is, you know, one of the, the most influential music artists of the 20th century. I could say that hands down. He's still experiments and innovates with many other artists and he's amazing and um you know we worked with him on creating a whole new way to visualize paul mccartney now he's younger and he's performing in a music video called find my way with beck and it's a, it's a new it's a new visualization form so we de-aged him 
So um, that technology, when we de-age someone, is what we call fountain. And so we said, you know, part of the the whole opportunities is well, you can have like a whole new new whole new video music video capabilities for yourself, and you could be de-aged. Uh, another opportunity came up where we took um, worked with Madison Beer. Uh, so Madison Beer is um, amazing performing artist from Epic Records, and uh, she um, with Sony's was launching their new immersive music division, and um, you know, so they they had uh, Hyperreal come in and build a virtual concert experience um, based on Madison's hypermodel that we created. So Madison, it, her hypermodel is a digital twin at the exact age that she is. So that's um, what we call a Gemini. So Gemini technology is you know is us today, and uh, and so and so that Gemini now is in a virtual concert experience, and so that virtual concert experience premiered initially where it was. Ray trace rendered on the cloud and pixel streamed via Verizon's 5G onto your mobile device. And you could hold up your device, watch the concert like you're at a regular concert holding up your phone, right? And you could walk around your room and look at it from any angle. Wow. And, um, and, 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 and it's all rendered in, in real time, ray traced, beautiful. You could go right up to her on stage and be right next to her. Uh, and then the next iteration of the concert was on TikTok, where she premiered it as a virtual concert event. You know, she's got 20 million Instagram followers, and she was talking about how she's using technology to engage with her fans. Madison is an incredible technologist. She's exploring all these new technologies, and you have to be a technologist to have that many followers on Instagram, and you have to know how to use the platforms. And so, you know, this is another example of, of a, a major, you know, superstar influencer and, and a recording artist, you know, finding a digital version and putting it out there to perform for their fans. And this is a virtual performance that she couldn't do in real life. She's dancing in fire. There's rain. There's a, she's inside of a galaxy. And then, you know, what we've seen is that Sony has been um, using this as a benchmark for the PSVR 2 headset, which is coming out shortly for the PlayStation 5. Uh, so we'll be visualizing the concert in VR. And then, of course, um, Sony's got a new um, spatial reality uh, display. It's like a monitor, but it's like this hologram. You don't need to wear glasses. And you could see 3D worlds in 3D uh, on this hologram. And so there's new emerging screen technology that's coming out. So, you know, it's another example of, of how, um, you know, your hypermodel goes to work across all these metaverse platforms and, and, and technologies, Notorious B.I.G. Right. We're working um, with his estate and, um, you know, he's deceased. So we had to rebuild him. And so what we call that technology is Phoenix, where... Um, you know, we have a deceased subject to start with. And, uh, and so we could do that. And then he's just starred in an hour-long uh, mixed reality concert event for Meta um, that you could see on a, on a Quest headset in VR on their Horizon Worlds platform. Uh, so, you know, we had to basically um, explore all these opportunities. And you think about the hyper model as the hub of the wheel 
And all of these opportunities are the spokes. Each one of this is like a whole new business story. Yeah. And, you know, so the first couple of years of Hyper Real was like proving out to the industry and to talent that the, you know, this is how you perform digitally. This is how you cross over into the mirror world. And now you have a virtual iteration of digital identity that can perform across all these platforms and all these technologies. Okay. Now we've been like, okay, back to the infrastructure. And now we've been, while this is happening, building the hardware and the platform underneath it and the software. So that way we can now scale this because this is going to grow fast. Right. And so, you know, when you asked me initially, like, um, is this how, is this what you started the company with in mind? And it was like, yes, but we couldn't just get there immediately. We had to take this little bit of a journey, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to, 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 to create premium content and understand for our talent where it all looks like. And then, you know, now I think people understand. They go, oh, how's my hypermodel going to get used? I see it. I see it all. It's all coming out there. And it, and it, it helps that, um, you know, McKinsey is predicting that uh, by the end of the decade, um, you know, virtual goods spending will be trillions of dollars. Uh, and you know what you're going to spend virtual goods on is a virtual avatar. Yeah. You know, you're going to have clothes, virtual clothes, <laughs> virtual makeup, virtual hair, virtual shoes, everything, virtual worlds. You know, your identity is the centerpiece of it. And so that's why, you know, hyper real starts with the identity because that that's where it's all going to come from. Fascinating stuff. Really fascinating stuff. And, and, and really cool to hear the role that, that you and hyper real are playing in shaping those new worlds and those new realities and uh, avatars. And, you know, you can start to, it's, it's easy for the mind to start, uh, you know, tangenting and, and, and spiraling to see, you know, just where all this can lead and all where it all can go. So just fascinated to think about that and, and, and where, you know, you guys are taking it. And uh, yeah, just I appreciate uh, you taking the time to, to kind of uh, educate myself and the listeners on, on Hyper Real and, and what you guys are doing in, uh, in, in the years and uh, months to come. Thanks. Appreciate it, Stephen. Thanks for taking the time and everyone out there. Thanks a lot. And I look forward to seeing everyone in the metaverse. Yes. And, and on that tip, where can uh, people find more about uh, you and, and Hyperreal? You could go to our site, hyperreal.io and uh, check us out there. Um, you know, just, you know, keep your eyes open. We'll be having announcements, a lot of announcements coming up. Well, it's definitely definitely sounds like a, an exciting ride, and uh, looking forward to to uh, seeing what uh, what you have coming up. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Lights Camera Crypto, a podcast produced by Matt Bogart and Essential Media. Music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes. If you enjoyed this experience, be sure to rate and subscribe to our show and to follow at Sladen and at Decentral Media for additional content.